Welcome to episode number seven of the Librarian's Guide to Teaching podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Amanda. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a topic that was requested on Twitter, online information literacy instruction, and some related concepts as applied to that environment, such as critical pedagogy. But before we get started with our conversation, how are you doing? Anything exciting happening this week? Nothing <laughs> exciting. Um, we're recording this during the holiday break, and my little one has been sick, so I've, I've been quarantined home. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time at home, so nothing exciting going on. Um, I'm actually looking forward to getting back to work next week and getting back into um, the routine. Uh, what about you? Yeah, pretty much the same thing here. Um, I keep seeing all of those memes on the internet about how nobody knows what day it is and that this is like this lost week where people are just eating all the food and losing track of time. Today is my sister-in-law's birthday and I had to keep reminding myself to call her this week, uh, not because I don't remember it's her birthday, but because I just really don't know what day it is. <laughs> um, but also I'm kind of looking forward to getting back into routine and into the new year, like you said and just getting everything off to the right foot. All right, so we've wanted to do an episode about online information literacy instruction for a while. So we were happy to see this request on Twitter when we asked for suggestions on what you all wanted to hear about on this episode. Librarian at Melody Lynn 457 suggested an episode on online instruction and added a few specific concepts like critical digital pedagogy and online open pedagogy. But before we get started with those concepts and how we feel that they could be incorporated into the online environment, let's start with our basic experiences with online instruction. So do you want to go first? Yeah, I can definitely start. So I've been doing online um, teaching uh, for about 10 plus years now. Since I basically started at Berkeley, I basically got thrown right into it. Um, I've done a variety of things. I've just placed, you know, PowerPoints and videos into uh, online, you know, LMSs. I've supported um, discussion boards, uh, some that were mine, others were that um, faculty had created the questions and I just kind of jumped in here and there. Um, I've also created self-paced um, learning opportunities. Um, you have done this with me before um, with our honors program where we have a standalone lib guide for the honors students where it's you know integrated into their curriculum um, but it's it's basically online um, uh, activities I've also done at the very basic level um, generic ask a librarian discussion board where students at any point in a semester um, can um, ask a librarian a question, uh, which in my experience, I've never had a lot of success with, but I've heard other librarians having some. I guess it just depends on um, the students and um, how um, engaged they want to be with their uh, embedded librarian. What about you? Yeah, um, kind of similar. You've done a little bit more uh, activity-related stuff, but I've really only done one-shot instruction online with the exception of one embedded type class where I had an English professor who wanted uh, me to be embedded the whole semester. But that was pretty much a one-time situation. Most of the instructors that I've worked with just want to be one-week facilitation of a discussion board. So I would create a PowerPoint or a video as like the lecture part of the week. Um, 
so yeah, I just went along with what the faculty wanted um, up until maybe last the last year or two when I would still maybe do a PowerPoint, but then I would do more of a workshop type LibWizard form to have them search for sources for their upcoming paper as opposed to just having them put that information in a discussion board. It seemed a little bit uh, better to do it in a LibWizard form. So right now, since I'm still pretty new in my position, I'm still in the process of developing relationships with faculty. So I'm hoping that 2020 will be the year that I get to incorporate some new stuff into my online instruction. And to be honest, I wish I had had more knowledge on some of the concepts from today's show because it really could have improved some of my previous work. So I'm looking forward to talking about these. I have to say that from talking to a lot of librarians about their type of um, online support, um, to us, it seems like, I know I get very frustrated with it, but when I talk to my other colleagues at other institutions, they're not even doing anything like that um, in some instances. You know, sometimes they don't even, they're not even supporting online classes. And if they are, they're lit literally just emailing the professor the PowerPoint or the video and that's it and then the professor embeds it into the course so I know we're very fortunate at Berkeley that we have that flexibility and status um, but I think after we finish having this conversation today um, I know that there are so many more opportunities that we could be taking in terms of supporting our students in uh, an online environment Right. So that's interesting to know that there's such a wide spectrum of opportunities taking place across higher ed libraries in terms of online instruction, you know, going from doing nothing to just the, the faculty taking our work and putting it in all the way up to this great stuff we're seeing with critical digital pedagogy. So that's cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so why don't we dive right into some of these concepts? Do you want to maybe give a little bit of a definition about critical digital pedagogy? Sure. So when I was doing the, some research on this concept, because we, we already talked about critical pedagogy a little bit with Ramel in episode four. So I was looking for things about implementing this digitally. And I came across uh, a website by Sean Michael Morris. He is the director of the Digital Pedagogy Lab, which is an experiential exploratory professional development gathering for a global digital pedagogy community. So he's got a blog on his site, which has some great information. And he runs the Digital Pedagogy Lab, as I said, uh, which helps educators implement these concepts. So I'd like to paraphrase some things from his writing that we felt captured these concepts. The first one is a quote, where critical pedagogy centers on social justice and liberation, critical digital pedagogy fronts with the complications of learning in digital environments, critical instructional design looks directly at applications. And it really does force us to ask what are the first steps we should be taking to teach a concept, not just allowing assessment methods or library management systems to dictate that for us. He also says, quote, the critical instructional design approach prioritizes collaboration, participation, social justice, learner agency, emergence, narrative, and relationships of nurture between students and between teachers and students. It acknowledges that all learning today is necessarily hybrid and looks for opportunities to integrate learners' digital lives into their digitally enhanced or fully online learning experiences. 
So it works against the standardization of so many educational technologies and aims for the fullest inclusion possible. End quote. So critical digital pedagogy asks the, the big why and how questions around technology in education. So around privacy, surveillance, assessment, representation. So how do we communicate these issues to our students? Those are some of the things that are being asked in this concept. Um, some other questions we should be asking would be how can students participate in meaningful learning in meaningful ways in the online classroom and make the online college environment as good as on-campus learning. And that's something that we'll talk about a little bit later. Lastly, in an article that we'll link in the show notes, Morris quotes Henry Garreau, who writes in his text on critical pedagogy, that quote, critical pedagogy asserts that students can engage their own learning from a position of agency, and in doing so, actively participate in narrating their identities through a culture of questioning that opens up a space of translation between the private and the public while changing the forms of self and social recognition. So as I was reading this, all of this stuff, I was just like, wow, that is not what my online pedagogy looks like. <laughs> right? <laughs> no. Yeah, definitely, definitely not. No, but then that led well into the other um, requested concept, which was open pedagogy. So you want to bring that up a little bit? Yeah, sure. So when we were doing research for this episode, um, there was this great website. Um, it was called the Open Pedagogy Notebook, um, openpedagogy.org, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, it defines open pedagogy as we engage with it is a site of praxis, a place where theories about learning, teaching, technology, and social justice enter into a conversation with each other and inform the development of educational practices and structures. Uh, the website goes on to say, um, first, we want to recognize that open pedagogy shares common investments with many other historical contemporary schools of pedagogy. For example, constructivist pedagogy, connected learning, and critical digital pedagogy are all recognizable pedagogical strands that overlap with open pedagogy. Uh, this website has some really great examples of open pedagogy projects, which I think really helps people get a little bit of better understanding of what this concept really means and how to actually implement it. So with that being said, now that we've provided some context uh, and definitions, um, what do you think this looks like for uh, online library instruction, whether it be credit bearing, one shot, or um, embedded? Honestly, this took a lot of thinking outside the box. So in reading up on this topic, I listened to two episodes of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, which is awesome if you don't already listen to that as well. And both guests in the episodes I listened to discussed how online instruction is really so new compared to the teaching that we've done and studied over the past hundreds or thousands of years. So we'll link to the episodes in the show notes, but the guests were Flower Darby, who spoke about her book, Small Teaching Online, and Rajiv Jangiani, who is the co-director of the Open Pedagogy Notebook, which we've also linked in the show notes. They both talked about the fact that what we've really done in online instruction is just let the LMS models dictate what we can do, like stick the PowerPoint here, get the students to respond there. But what we should be doing is critically thinking about the teaching and the pedagogy and making the online environment work for that. 
And I admit, I really never thought about it that way. I've been letting the MLS and the faculty lead the way, whereas I know we're capable of being a lot more in this. But thinking about the one-shot model, it does seem even harder to adapt digital critical digital pedagogy for library instruction in a one-shot because of the potential limitations of a one week of class, which seems like it's more than the one and a half hours we might get for online teaching, but it's really not when you have to give students days and hours to, to respond and participate. So there's the timing aspect and then there's the limitations of technology, right? Yeah, uh, I definitely agree. I think it's easy to fall into that cookie cutter trap of how an online class is set up and expectations of online learning. Um, you know, online learning is marketed as complete the work anytime that's convenient for you. You have all this extra time to do work. And, you know, um, I was recently, I, about three years ago, I just finished my master's degree in instructional design and it was completely online. And let me tell you, I almost wished I went to a physical classroom every day because the, the, the online work to me, it was not always engaging and it seemed like a lot of busy work. Um, you know, most of our, our engagement was through discussion boards, but they were not engaging. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration with, with, with discussion boards because, and there's a lot of mixed um, ideas of how much does a faculty member step in and participate in a discussion board. Do they respond to every student? Do they respond to every student that responds to another student? Um, or do they just jump in periodically and check? Um, so I think that also adds a layer of um, interesting kind of weirdness to, to the online learning environment as, as well. And so from a teaching um, point of view, I think um, it's easy to just go with the flow and get into that, okay, this is how it's always done kind of rut. Right, exactly. Um, and discussion boards are hard in general because if, if, as you said, as a student, we're dreading them and we dread reading them and grading them, um, you know, then obviously the students don't want to do it. So we have to do that thinking outside the box of what other options are. Um, and one of the resources for this episode, the critical digital pedagogy textbook is an open access book which has a chapter on discussion boards that talks about how weekly discussion boards just take the spontaneity out of the true discussion that can happen in a classroom. So right now students are just posting to get points and they're responding to a classmate because they have to. And so they recommend using more external tools or places that students do freely talk already such as Twitter um, but that really might require students to sign up for it. You know, not everyone has Twitter. Um, so that might be something to think about. There may be some other tools as well that were recommended in that chapter. Right. I, you know what? In theory, I think that is great. Right. Uh, uh, as a student, um, we had to create um, a blog. And mm. that blog, I mean, I know I can delete it, but even after deleting it, that blog still exists in mm -hmm. some cases. And anytime you Google my name, that blog comes up. And I know it's a part of my 
learning journey and I shouldn't be embarrassed about it. But like 10 years from now, am I really going to want someone to find that blog um, out there about me talking about some instructional design concept, you know? That's a really interesting point because that's, as we mentioned in the, the definition of uh, critical digital pedagogy was talking about, you know, privacy issues and bringing those to life for kids. It becomes an issue. It's kind of that right to be forgotten. forgotten and it's still there. You think about other social media like Twitter. Um, I know, I think, I feel like I remember at my institution reading somewhere that if a professor wanted to use Twitter, that they had to get approval um, mm. to, to make students create social media accounts for that class like it was like a waiver uh, so it does get complicated uh, when, when you want to use some of those like external third-party tools which I think just adds that whole layer of complexity um, to, to things when you're trying to be exciting and engaging in an online environment but these are things that you have to think about it's it's kind of it's you, know, you, you get kind of divided between students right to privacy and preference and engagement levels. Right, exactly. I mean, on the one hand, it could be a great discussion point to talk to the students about what you had to do to prep and the relationships between information and the online and the digital world and things like that. So that's actually great teachable moments. But like you said, at the same time, what if it doesn't work out? Um, you, you do have to be prepared for that aspect too. Um, so that does throw a wrench in the works a little bit, but it may at least be a good way to explore and fail and then try something different that will work eventually in the future. Like we have to have these growing pains in this process in order to get to the next month. I did think of some ways, some kind of hopefully easy ways that we can incorporate critical digital pedagogy. Um, and as we discussed in our episode with Ramel, one easy way to incorporate social justice is at the very least making the topics that you pick as examples be things that are timely and that are bringing important issues to light for students. And, and if possible, making it relatable to the class. Uh, for gen ed classes like English, that opens it up to so many different topics um, because there are different students with different majors in the classroom, but it can open it up to issues of representation, climate, climate change, racial disparities, etc. So adding these examples to your PowerPoint or your discussion prompts, if you're using those formats, um, can just really bring those conversations to light and bring those aspects into your online teaching. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. I always try to refresh my tutorials or PowerPoints um, pretty much every semester. If it's a PowerPoint, I'm refreshing it every semester to make it um, relevant to something that's going on in the world presently. And one other thing that I saw in the Open Pedagogy Notebook was um, instead of a video or a lib wizard like I've done, was maybe contributing to an annotated bibliography as a class. And it might take a few short videos to scaffold the process and maybe even two weeks instead of one, um, just thinking about the logistics of how to um, teach them exactly what to do and also still leave time for them to do it and for discussion. Um, and it could culminate in a discussion board reflection of their process um, if that type of assessment was needed. 
And as I mentioned, there is an example of this specifically in the Open Pedagogy Notebook of a collaborative annotated bibliography on immigration and refugees. Um, so the students there are contributing to something that already exists out there in the world, which opens up to a whole conversation around scholarship as conversation. Uh, it does take a little thinking outside of the box of how to actually make the assignment work piece by piece, uh, but it probably is really worth taking that extra time to figure that out. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have to say, again, just kind of drawing on my own experiences when I was in school a few years ago, um, the most engaging opportunities that I had was when I was able to talk about my experiences when I had choices about um, an assignment to complete. So like sometimes you would get to do your assignment in either a video format or um, a website format. It didn't necessarily have to be a paper. So that was also very exciting to, to have that agency. You know, that's what we, you know, we read about in the description of critical digital pedagogy about learner agency. So that was also really exciting to me. Um, and then when I had real engagement with the faculty, like that was really engaging mm. to me. Like I really liked having a professor respond to me and not just saying great job or not just saying, uh, you know, fix your citation, like true engagement. Um, and you know, that does, that does take time. Um, I think in, and this is going to sound really strange, um, maybe not that strange, but I think in order for us to get um, this type of level of engagement, it has to be um, not a standardized week. It needs to be a low stakes graded assignment that can just kind of happen on its own. Mm. Um, as I think in online learning, it's very standardized. It's very like this discussion board has to meet these three requirements. And these type of like super engaging out of the box activities, it's hard to assess them and give them a lot of weight. People don't know how to wrap their head around that kind of grading. Um, so I think I, if I were to want to, and I do um, try something like big like this, um, it, I would recommend it as a low stakes graded assignment and not a standard give me one week. Um, type of thing. I don't know what that would look like, um, but a few examples and then I was trying to think about like what could be done is um, would be like maybe something small would be like an embedded Padlet where the students can just like all share response to a question and they can see everyone's response. And if you're not familiar with Padlet, what's great about that is that you can embed video links, um, website links, images, text, so it could be a whole class's shared response to a question um, in a visual way. I've but, never used Padlet. Yeah, so they can share a video and a link and all that stuff too? Yes, because it's like an open, it's almost like a Google Doc, but it's like you can do other things, like you can link to other things and you make it open so that anyone that has access to it can add to it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so like you can embed that, let's say, on a LibGuide or embed that into an LMS and they can just add to it right there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, but then it becomes like, well, how do you assess that? So that's like why I'm thinking maybe not a like, standardized assignment. Um, and then like 
like big, huge pie in the sky um, type of activity is maybe for like a capstone or like a research methods class. Um, I was thinking we help our criminal justice research methods class a lot. Um, and I'm thinking, because they have to do like a research study where they have to ask a question, they have to do a survey, they have to do an interview. I'm thinking maybe they do some type of multimedia mashup and they put videos together of like interviewing people and images from what they're studying. And then that all gets put onto like a class libguide and it's more of a visual representation rather than um, papers. Yeah. Something different. So instead of maybe presenting it, um, well, if for an online environment, because we do have a lot of sections in the online environment too. So, you know, in a face-to-face, -face, you would present it to your class, but in the online environment, it would be a multimedia project. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that's also complex too, because you have to make sure that the students have the skills to record, to edit, to use the tools that you're providing them. You can't just say, make me a video, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's also um, a challenge too. But I did, it feels like a thousand years ago, but I read this article about how this one professor, and I think it was in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, I'll see if I can find it, but how this professor was engaging his students in a math class by every student would have to answer like three or four problems, right? They'd submit it. And then if they got it right, they would then have to teach their classmates how to do it. And they would all take turns one week. One student would have to like do it like they'd have to record themselves as mm -hmm. if they were in front of the classroom teaching them how to do it. Um, so that's kind of engaging too, where they're, they're learning from each other and they're also learning about technology and they're learning about themselves and how they speak and presentations and so it's, it's, it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's probably nerve-wracking for a professor to say to the students, hey, you have to do this and give them all the tools to be able to do it, but um, it sounds super engaging. Yeah, it almost sounds like a really big jigsaw activity <laughs> where they're all teaching um, the whole class. But, and we'll talk about this later, but I think if you create the right online culture, an online environment that maybe there won't be so much fear attached to it or if they feel supported that they would be more open to doing that. So I think that's a really cool idea. And I know that um, Melody Lynn had uh, suggested this topic. I think she said she teaches a credit-bearing class. So I mean that would be something awesome for a, a definitely a credit-bearing class that was a whole semester, probably not for a one-shot. Yeah, no, probably not for a one-shot. Um, I also think what's exciting about doing something like a Padlet um, is that they're contributing in a way um, to like a, answering a question and maybe in a sense they're doing something collectively, but it doesn't feel like the traditional group work. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> online group work can be very, very challenging, um, especially when you're in different time zones. I mean, when I was back in school, um, three years ago, my, I had a group where we were all different time zones. So like we were meeting 10 PM my time because that was the earliest everyone else could meet. So that could be a challenge, um, for groups to get together as well as for students to get together. If you ever wanted to, as a professor or a librarian, have that synchronous opportunity.
Yeah, right. That just adds a whole other wrench to things as well um, in working in groups. Yeah. So did you have any other points for that question? There was also a lesson I saw in the ACRL book called Framing Information Literacy. Um, it was that set of books about the framework that came out a few years ago. There was a chapter that talked about using Wikipedia and comparing the background information that you find on Wikipedia to what you would find in the library's resources. And the author did teach a credit bearing course, so they were really able to build up to this lesson plan. So that would be a little bit different than for a one shot. So the lesson teaches the information has value frame. And it, as, as I said, it might be difficult to adapt in a one shot, but it could be possible. It um, just got me thinking about doing a Wikipedia editing session with an online class because that really lends itself so well to all the different frames and it gives an opportunity for conversation and discussion. Um, and if you have a good relationship with your with the faculty, um, perhaps you could ask for two weeks in a class to help with that facilitating. And as you said, maybe it's not perfectly accessible with all the check boxes that we're used to doing in online, uh, but using assessments other than discussion boards in this case could be really engaging. Yeah, that, that does sound uh, like an exciting assignment to um, test out in the online environment. And I guess my last thought on this really would be that this is a great opportunity for embedded librarianship that we spoke about in the last episode. Uh, it could be great to have librarians working with faculty from the start of a class to really incorporate information literacy concepts in authentic ways um, and actually incorporate critical digital pedagogy as they're planning. And it goes back to the quote from Henry Garreau earlier, where students can, quote, actively participate in narrating their identities through a culture of questioning. So librarians being part of that throughout the process and uh, planning would be really valuable. Yeah, definitely. I think that actually kind of lends itself to my thoughts on the next question, which is um, how do we create an online class culture? And I really do believe that there, while there are multiple ways, I think it starts with a librarian building a relationship with a faculty member, as you were saying, and getting them on board with you interacting with their students in multiple formats and multiple weeks. Um, I don't think you can cultivate a culture in a week. I don't think you can cultivate a culture in just a discussion board. I think it needs to be several separate opportunities um, where they're interacting with a librarian. Um, and I think, um, you know, we already kind of, already kind of touched upon this um, as being a challenge, but I think online learning needs to break that mold of asynchronous is, is an advantage all the time. I think there needs to be some synchronous sessions, whether, you know, you commit to it, you know, it's all, it's kind of like that concept of blend, blended learning. You, when you sign up for a course, you commit that you're going to attend two of the five synchronous sessions, you know, it gives, I think it gives that face-to-face -face connection, um, you know, because a lot of students, they don't feel connected to their professor. They don't feel connected to their classmates in an online environment. So if they're interacting with students for a whole semester, 
and they're still not feeling connected, they're not going to feel connected to a librarian in one week. Um, so I, we kind of dabbled with this a little bit at Berkeley, and you know, you and I have done this where we set up an optional um, drop-in session um, for a, um, an internship class where it was particularly um, challenging. So students who wanted that face-to-face -face time with a librarian, they could drop quote unquote drop into the Zoom meeting. Um, you know, and we didn't get insane numbers of students, but we did get some who were interested in interacting with a with a librarian. Um, and it was helpful. And we actually have a librarian taking that concept a step further. She's like the online director, associate director. She's doing that with drop-in research hours where any student can drop in um, to talk about any topic. Um, so we'll see how that goes, but I think that's how you create a culture. You give students different ways to learn, different opportunities to learn, and engage with, with you and their, their classmates. I remember those asynchronous sessions, uh, and the students that did attend said, I'm so glad that I did this because I got to meet you guys, and I got to ask my specific questions, and I feel more confident in my assignment now. So just having that as an endorsement for those sessions um, was really motivational to keep trying it. And I think you're right. It wouldn't be too much to ask to say that, you know, you have to attend one of these asynchronous sessions a semester, and it wouldn't really affect the marketing of, of online classes at all. Um, and I think it's true that the professor sets a lot of the tone for the class as librarians. It's the same thing as on-site classes. If a faculty member has that negative or not engaging rapport with the students, it gets passed on to us when we teach our one-shots. So the faculty member has to build that culture because as you said, we can't build that culture in one week. Um, we can make engaging activities, but it's only going to go as far as the culture and the motivation allows. So that's tough. I used to do this, and I think I'm going to get back into it, is I used to do a 30, like 50, 45 second, whatever, intro video where I would introduce myself um, and, and say who I am and, and what I'll be doing for them with them for the week. I don't even know how many of them watched it, um, but I just felt like sometimes that made the difference. I felt like sometimes they knew a little bit about me. Um, and maybe they were a little more comfortable. And it's something simple, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It could be messy. You could stumble. You can hesitate. You can say, um, it's more authentic. It's not as cookie cutter um, as you see in some of these, like, intro to the course videos. Um, so I would recommend anyone interested in getting a little bit more connected with your students, just create a 40-second video just, you know, just put it out there and don't try to make it perfect. That's funny that you said that too, because one of the episodes I mentioned from the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, the one with Flower Darby, the small teaching online episode, um, they talk about exactly that, just leaving the blips in. Like if your dog walks into the room when you're recording your lecture video, let it happen, you know, because showing that you're a real person and yeah. being honest, it helps to build that relationship with them. So mm -hmm. I definitely think that that's a great tip. Yeah, yeah. So the next thing we were going to talk about was whether the one-shot model really works for online library instruction at all and creating engaging content and learning objects. What do you think? I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit in yeah. what we've worked with. We really didn't come up with too many, um, you know, learning object ideas because it's hard <laughs> for a one-shot. It is hard. 
So I think I, I think the answer to that question is is you have to try, right? I mean, if you only have an opportunity to be in in that class for one week, take that opportunity, you know. Um, but I would say just continue to work on it and try and work with the same professor every semester and try to build upon what you've done and maybe tweak it here, tweak it there. I think it also depends on what we mean by does it work. Uh, we could say technically what I've been doing worked because I do have, based on rubrics that I have, um, students are finding resources for their assignments. So, you know, okay, they have the basic information literacy skills, that's great. But if we want to be doing things like critical digital pedagogy, where we're teaching them to really think and grappling with these big questions, then according to that metric, then no, it's not working because my stuff wasn't working on that metric. So we need to do what we talked about a little bit before and break the mold of online learning and try all of these new things. But then there could be the potential to break a relationship with a faculty member by doing something that they don't like. So we're tiptoeing the line a little bit between keeping relationships, teaching students the information literacy skills we need them to learn, and getting them to think critically about these big questions around information. And all doing this while being tied up in the time frame of online and the technology. So it's figuring out what does work mean for your goals and your institution, and then trying to go from there. At the end of the day, you want the students to walk away with the skills that they need. Yeah. Sometimes it's not super pretty and super engaging. And, you know, you want learning to be exciting and fun all the time, but I just don't think that's possible because of larger factors. Like you said, maybe there's a mold. Maybe the professor's not comfortable because it's outside of what they're doing or what they've ever seen a librarian do before. Um, so yeah, that, that, that can be, that can be a huge challenge. Um, I, I have an example. I was supporting a public speaking class and I wanted to be engaging. And I actually, one of my questions was, and it, this was even not even uh, required. It was an optional activity for students to record because what I was doing is I was going in there helping them to learn how to find sources for a persuasive speech. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, is they were finding sources and they're talking about the sources. And I said in a question, if you want additional feedback on how to integrate this source into your speech, attach a 30 second clip of how you would talk about this, this source in your speech. And the professor emailed me and said, can you take that question off? They're yeah. already doing a lot of videos. I don't want to overwhelm them. Yeah, uh, because you're trying to engage the students and the faculty member is putting up a barrier there. And uh, I just tweeted this from our Twitter account. It was a blog post from librarian Kevin Sieber. He did this whole blog post about faculty-librarian relationships, and this just reminded me of that. Um, I mean, we could probably do half an episode on his blog post. It was great. He talks about how within faculty, each discipline doesn't tell the other one how to teach their concepts. So why is it that we allow faculty to tell us as the experts in information how to do our jobs? 
And I think this is something that's been talked about in libraries for a, for a while, but it was interesting to see it articulated in this way. And it kind of goes to what you just said. Why are they telling you how to do your engagement? I think because we're being invited in. We're, we're being invited guests. So right. I think that's, that's why it's, they think they have the agency to do that to librarians. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I definitely, I get a lot of librarians who, um, and this could be, all, like you said, a half an episode, um, who are very like, they tiptoe around, well, that's what the faculty wanted, and I'm not going to go beyond that. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas I kind of push it a little bit more face-to-face. Um, like, for example, a professor will say, okay, I'm going to give you 20 minutes. And I'll say, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And <laughs> I'll be in there for 45 minutes. Or I'll be honest with them and I'll say to them, listen, I can't do that in 20 minutes. I can do this in 20 minutes, but not what you're asking me to do. Um, right. So, but, and, and they're surprised to hear me say that. They think that, you know, this is what they're giving us. And we're just going to be okay with it. But I, you know, I, I think that it's even more challenging in the online space because I think they're very, if a faculty member is engaged in their online course the way they should be, they are very on top of every little detail of all the activities that the students have to complete in a given week. And right. they, like this one professor, she didn't miss a beat. She saw my question. You know, there's some professors that don't even pay attention. And they're just like, oh, this is one week. I don't have to participate in a discussion board. The librarian is just going to handle it. Whereas this professor, she knew, she, she read all of my questions. And she made sure that I knew that she read my questions. Which, honestly, we would want anyway because it's the equivalent of, like, in person having the faculty just not be there. Um, at the same time, you know, you had a plan in mind of how you were going to get the students interested and in that threw a wrench in it. So... Yeah, that's an interesting example. Yeah, yeah, that article was really interesting. Blog post, I think. It was really interesting. I, I read it as well. I meant to tweet you about it, but... <laughs> it may be good on an upcoming episode. You may hear about this again. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think it's definitely... Um, you definitely talked about a lot of important things that librarians need to be talking about, for sure. So we want to hear from you. What does critical digital pedagogy or open pedagogy look like to you in the online environment? Or if you have resources that you love about these concepts, we want you to shout them out. Send us an email or tweet us or hashtag uh, librarian's guide to teaching. Okay, so we're, we're switching things up a little bit this time around since we're, we're on break. Um, we don't have any triumphs or fails to share, but we thought it would be a perfect time to talk about um, goals for the new year. So Jessica, what are you thinking about some goals for the new year? Well, I definitely first want to incorporate more of these concepts that we talked about today into my instruction and be more reflective in my teaching practices. In my new role, I'm lucky to have the ability to take that time to think about my teaching and evaluate it more. So I definitely plan to make the most of it. Um, and I, this is a little bit deeper, but I do plan to do less work for the sake of achievement. And as I get older, I'm just reflecting more on what I spend my time on 
And while I'm really incredibly proud of what I've accomplished in my career, I want to focus less on the shiny accomplishments and work on things that truly fulfill me. And if that resonates with you and you haven't read the Meredith Farkas blog series called Thoughts on Mid Being a Mid-Career Librarian, definitely head over to her blog and check it out. Um, I'll also link it in the show notes. You don't have to be a mid-career librarian to appreciate what she says, but it definitely spoke to me as I approach 10 years in librarianship, and uh, I think it's definitely something I'm going to take into the new year with me. Uh, and lastly, kind of in that vein, I want to build relationships with some of the students that I've met so far in classes, although I'm not sure if it's going to be harder in this much larger campus environment that I'm in. You know, I'm coming from 400 FTE to 6,000. So, <laughs> and you know, I did 30 English classes this semester. So it may be a little harder, but it's definitely a goal that I have to really get on a first name basis with a lot of my students. I think those are great goals. Um, I know it can be a little overwhelming going from 400 to 6,000, but um, I'm sure there are small ways that you can definitely um, make a difference and make your presence known to the students for sure. Yeah, so what about you? Okay, um, so I definitely want to um, step up my LibGuide game. Um, I, I want to create some more interesting, dynamic, engaging LibGuides, um, which I don't think my LibGuides are boring, but like I definitely want to create some more interactive opportunities on them. Um, I want to make more connections with faculty. Um, in my role, you know, I've been in my new role as a director for, this is my second year, um, going into my third. Um, I, I mean, being with the college for 10 years, I definitely have relationships, but there are still a lot of faculty that just don't know who I am, don't know my name. So I want to get myself out there a little more um, with faculty and, um, you know, look for some of those opportunities. Uh, I know there are, you know, opportunities throughout the semester that I maybe I don't go to because I don't know if it's like a fit for me or um, I don't see the value in it, but I think I'm going to push myself a little bit to be a little more social um, and kind of work the room a little bit. Um, maybe I'll actually get my business cards made up. I haven't even gotten my business cards made <laughs> since I know it's ridiculous, right? I, I haven't done it. Um, some bigger goals that I want to achieve, but I'm not going to like kill myself if I don't, is I'd like to publish something, whether it be an article or a book chapter, on my own, completely by myself. I have had great opportunities to publish book chapters um, with colleagues, but I've never attempted to do anything by myself. Um, so I would love to just you know, do that. Even if, even if I don't get accepted and I get rejected, at least I can say I put myself out there and I put my ideas out there. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a nice one. Yeah, 10 years later. <laughs> and then, you know, we have our shared goal of, of presenting internationally, so. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, last year, I didn't get to present last year. I, I chose not to. Um, I had a baby. And I was still trying to figure out the whole mom thing. Um, yep. And now <laughs> I've kind of gotten a little bit of a better handle on it. I really want to um, get back into presenting at some of the conferences. So um, I'm definitely going to look to apply to some of the upcoming things. And um, international is definitely on my list. 
That's on the bucket list. <laughs> so here we come, 2020. Yep, exactly. We're coming at you. <laughs> coming at you. And with that, um, that is end of episode seven. You can find the podcast on Twitter at librarian underscore guide. You can find me, Jessica, at librarygeek611. You can find Amanda at historybuff820. And you can send us an email at infolitteachingpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe the podcast wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you in the reviews as well. We'd love to read your review on an upcoming episode.